0: Our text tonight really is verse 2 of 1 Peter 1. And as we have seen in previous times, Peter is writing to encourage and to strengthen believers who are facing severe trials and persecution. And uh, these opening verses are his greeting and he begins by emphasising that those to whom he is writing are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He begins under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with a a profoundly deep truth of God, almost in the first sentence of the letter, the doctrine of God's election being chosen by God. And this great truth brings comfort for those in the faith. And Peter intended to assure these early suffering believers of uh, the fact that God loved them, that his love was upon them from before the foundation of the world, it is eternal and steadfast. And this truth, as we saw and began to see last time, has the, the capability to comfort these afflicted saints in the time of their need. They've been scattered, persecuted, they were considered as outcasts, they were wrongfully blamed and slandered for the burning of Rome. And so Peter wanted them to know and be comforted that even though they weren't esteemed by the world, that they were loved of God, that they were citizens of heaven, and that he held them and he would not let them go. And when suffering came and persecution, you know, no doubt they would have been questioning so much, but Peter wants them to know the sovereign purpose of God towards them. The amazing grace that has saved them in the past and that will sustain them through all that they were facing and that would also keep them forever. And so his purpose for them unfolds throughout all eternity, no matter what the world may do to them. They have been called, they will be kept, and they will be brought to glory, and all because of the faithfulness and the grace of a great God. And what is true of these believers to whom Peter was writing those many years ago is true for all believers. And so it is a great comfort and encouragement to us this night as we see these things, if they are ours, by grace. And so just to recap, last time we looked at the difficulties that some have with this great truth of sovereign election, and we saw in verse 1 that Peter makes it very clear that believers are chosen by God. And that the choosing is God's sovereign purpose and on the basis of his own character and grace. And sometimes when these things are brought before people, they think only of a very small and narrow amount of people. But this is a, this is a vast plan. It's a wonderful reality. And that God has set his love upon his people for the foundation of the world. God saving people across time, across the world, according to his mercy and grace. And so the believer can know that God has set his love upon them, has called them out to himself. And also that they has been given as a love gift to the Lord Jesus before even time began. And those are amazing things that we began to consider last time. And then in verse 1, we also began to consider how believers are pilgrims in this world. As a result of that setting apart, as a result of God laying hold that election, Peter says that the believer is is a pilgrim, is a stranger, is a foreigner, a temporary resident of this world because our citizenship is elsewhere. We have been made citizens of heaven. And so in that sense, we are a society within a society. We are those who have been called out to God. We are governed by him through his word. We are indwelt by the spirit of God. There is a, a fundamental difference that has taken place by God's work in the believer's life. There is something different. They are a new creation. They have been born again. They've been given a different perspective. They see the world as it really is. They've been given different convictions, different beliefs, different priorities, different desires and principles and pursuits and joys that are foreign to the world. There is a distinction. It's interesting, in 1 John it says that we do not love the world. James says that we are not to be so preoccupied with the world that we could be called friends of the world. Friendship with God means enmity with the world, and as his people, we are strangers in it. So our witness is not just what we say, but it is the way that we live. In fact, it is our lives that give us that platform to speak. And so we see in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that the believer then is an ambassador for Christ. We are sent into the world with the gospel, with that ministry of reconciliation, to tell people that they can know God, that they can be brought back to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are sent into the world as ambassadors, as witnesses. So here we are, the the people of God in this world, but not of it. And we must speak to the world and must live in such a way that we gain a hearing. And it's not easy. And plus the discouragement, the hostility of the world to the gospel makes it difficult. And the temptation then becomes to withdraw. And that's what you see many doing. They withdraw from seeking to reach the world and just retreat into their own little group. And that's what Peter is speaking to these believers about. You see, imagine how it is facing severe persecution like those that were uh, in this letter and being written to in this letter. What they were facing, there would be even more temptation just to withdraw inwardly for the sake of, of fellowship and support and protection and love. But Peter, throughout this letter, is reminding them to remember their purpose. Even though they're they're going through these trials and these difficulties, that they must not be just focused inwardly. That God still has his purposes for them in this world. And it's a real challenge. I don't know about you, because the longer that you've been following the Lord and involved in the life of the family of God, and, you know, you find that links... And interaction with unbelievers can become less and less. And some get caught in in a Christian bubble. But we must resist the temptation of that because we are here, God has set us here with the purpose of reaching out to a lost world. And interestingly, you look through the scriptures, there are times, and we see it in Acts, don't we? Acts 8, there are times when the Lord scatters his people in order that the gospel spreads and the church grows. And so we have to remember that even as pilgrims headed for our heavenly home, we are not here just to exist, to tick off the days, but to reach the world, to take the gospel out. You know, like Abraham, we look for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, but our purpose whilst here is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And we must never forget that. And it must be evident in the way that we live and in the way that we speak. It's interesting, at the time that this letter was written, in ancient times, a writer, uh, an unbeliever, wrote about Christians like this. And I want to read the description to you. He wrote this, Christians are not marked out from the rest of mankind by their country, or their speech, or their customs. They dwell in cities, both Greek and barbarian, each as his lot is cast. They follow the customs of the region in clothing and in what they eat, and in the outward things of life generally. But they manifest the wonderful and openly paradoxical character of their state. Even though they live in the lands of their birth, they are there as temporary residents." They take their share of all responsibilities as citizens. Every foreign land is their native land, and every native land a foreign land. They pass their days on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. Now, it's amazing that an unbeliever should write that about believers. They saw the difference in the way that these people were living. And so that is the way we are to be. We are pilgrims, we are strangers, we are headed to a a heavenly home, we are citizens of another land, and yet God in his purposes has set us in this place for such a time as this. And so it was even for these believers facing the persecution that they were. And so they were chosen by God, they were pilgrims, And then Peter returns to this great theme in verse 2, that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so the believer is chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father that is based upon a predetermined relationship. Now friends, understanding this verse is so important. And there are many who sort of go into different elements here there are some who interpret this verse and they say well what this means is this that, that god in his omniscience his all-knowing capability he knew what people would do and so in some supernatural way he looked through history before it happened and he he chose those who responded to the gospel And so by his divine observation, he was able to see ahead, to see who would believe, and then he affirmed them as elect. And of course, that for many is very acceptable. And uh, it sounds more appealing because what it does is it makes man responsible for believing. And it plays to pride. And the argument is, well, that's far more fair. But as we saw last time, It is only fair in terms of human standards of fairness. That's not what the scriptures teach. And there are a number of problems with this view. Let me explain why. It makes man sovereign. And God is relegated to approving what we have done. And God responding to man's action. And so it changes the very character of God away from the God described in Scripture in places like Isaiah 46, where it speaks of our God accomplishing his purposes according to his pleasure. It makes man sovereign. But also it gives man the credit for receiving salvation, for having the awareness to believe. Something that the Bible says that we are incapable of doing. And it steals the glory away from God. It also assumes that man has the ability to seek God when he chooses, which the Bible says that he cannot. It also makes salvation a work the result of man's belief, not God's grace and gift of faith. And so foreknowledge doesn't mean, as some interpret, information that is gained by looking ahead. Friends, God doesn't choose based upon him seeing some merit in us. It is based on his own character, his purposes, and upon a predetermined plan and relationship. It's interesting, if you were to look a bit further down in the chapter, if you look at verse 20, you'll see that there is a, the same word actually is used again. And it says, he indeed was foreordained, foreknown before the foundation of the world now in that verse verse 20 it's speaking of the lord jesus now if you apply the same principle that many want to apply to that first verse verse two then you know you could get into the realm where you're saying well god chose christ to be the savior based on seeing what jesus would do in the future well that's just not so Just as we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world according to God's own pleasure, so the work of Christ was predetermined in what we call the councils of eternity, the Son himself in agreement with the Father that he would come and do these things. And so this foreknowledge is inseparably linked to that predetermined plan, to that deliberate design of God. You see it in the preaching, you know, of the apostles, Acts 2.23, him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands are crucified and put to death. Christ was delivered up to die by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, that plan brought into action. And so it is with our election, according to the foreknowledge of God. God, in his sovereign grace, set in his love upon sinners before even the foundation of the world. And then Peter goes on and he explains how this then becomes a reality in time. If you look in verse 2, so uh, we've got that whole issue there. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and then in sanctification of the Spirit. So this eternal election, God's saving plan and purpose, is made a reality in a person's life through the work of the Holy Spirit, setting them apart. And so the believer is set apart from sin, set apart from the world, from being a child of the enemy of Satan, made a child of God. They're set apart from death. They're brought to life. It is all the action of the Holy Spirit And so what was ordained in eternity is then made a reality in time in a person's life by the Holy Spirit uniting that person to Christ, applying that saving work of Jesus to the individual. And it is the Spirit who comes and sets us apart from sin and unbelief and gives us those gifts of repentance and faith, sets us apart to those and to holiness, born of the Spirit, And the Spirit of God works upon the word and he takes the truth and he applies it and grants those gifts to believe. 1 Thessalonians 1, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. You know, it is a a contradiction to say that God chose a man to be in Christ and yet not make him holy. You know, we are sanctified in position when we are saved, and then that sanctifying process being made like Jesus continues until we are taken home to be with him. And so the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit makes the unholy holy. And so if the Holy Spirit separates us from unbelief to faith, he separates us from the love of sin to hate sin. And if he separates us in all those ways from death to life and darkness to light, it is to bring us to holiness to make us like Jesus, to make us what we are in position. And it will show, therefore, in the way that we live. And that's what Peter says. If you look at verse 2, so you have this election according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It is made a reality by the Holy Spirit. But what's the purpose of this election, verse 2? For obedience. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is to make us like Christ and to be obedient to the Lord. Friends, it is so simple. We are set apart from sin to God in order that we might obey Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there is this great election, then this new life in Christ, which is there and applied in time, which shows itself in a changed life. Now, we don't obey perfectly, but the desire is there to obey. And it becomes a pattern in our lives as those who are born again. And by His grace, we are made faithful and fruitful and serving the Master, loving Christ. True salvation yields that spiritual fruit of obedience, the work of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul highlights this about the believers in the church there. He says how much of a blessing that they are to him. And why? Why does he give thanks to God always for them It is because of the evidence of grace in their lives. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1 4, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. But how does he know that? Because the gospel came to them in word and power, in the Holy Spirit and all conviction, and it results then, 1 Thessalonians 1 6, in the fact that they became imitators of him and of the Lord, that they became, verse 7, examples to all believers. And that they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. There's a change that's seen. He sees the evidence of life, the outworking of salvation because they had the desire to obey and honour the Lord. You know, one writer answers the question, how can I know my election? How can I know it? And he gives a number of things to look out for. And he says, the word of God has come to us in divine power so that self-trust and self-complacency is shattered and self-righteousness destroyed. So the word has spoken to us to show that there is no hope in self. And then also he says, when we are seeing the evidence of God's work in our lives, we know the Spirit's conviction of our guilty, ruined, lost condition. You know, the people around us don't know that they're lost. But God awakens, and we are given to see our condition. Also, the one who knows that work of God in their lives have been brought to see the wonder and the sufficiency of Jesus to save them. And they've been given that divine gift of faith to lay hold of him and to rest upon him as their only hope, so that they believe Jesus and they trust him. And then there is evidence I have new nature in me, so I have a love for God. I want to follow him and worship him. I want to please him and know him. I have an appetite for spiritual things. I long to be holy. I long to be more like Jesus. These things are evidences of the Spirit's work. Also, we've been brought to see sin for what it is, and we hate sin. There are times when we stumble and we we do things that we wish that we did not do, but we see it for what it is. We see the horror of sin, the offence of sin to a holy God. Also, we have that desire to avoid that which is condemned by God's word, and we are quick to repent when we stumble. We want to get back to being right with God and, and walking with him. And it is our desire, if we've got the work of God in us, to grow in grace. And we want to make every use of the the means of grace to this end. All these things, they show the evidence of of life within, that desire to obey. And that's what Peter says. He says, as God works, as this election which is there in eternity past, if we can use terms like that, is applied in time to the individual, they are transformed, they are changed to obey. They want to follow Jesus. Jesus. And when we see evidences of that in our lives, it gives us confidence that God is working in us. The Word teaches us. It moves us. It convicts us. We're awakened to sin. We also see the glory of Jesus in his reality. We have a new nature, new desires for God and for his Word and to serve him and glorify him. We want to be done with sin and to kill sin and we want to do what pleases with the law. Ultimately, we have a heart to obey Jesus. And however faint that may be, it is an evidence of election of salvation. That's what Paul writes often in his letters to the believers in the various places, the transformed life. And then in verse two, it goes on to the next part. And again, it picks up on this idea of obedience and security in the law sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the connection that Peter is making here with obedience? How does this idea of sprinkling of the blood of Jesus fit with what he's saying in the rest of the verse? Now, there are many who think, well, he's just speaking about salvation and uh, possibly linking it back to the shedding of blood on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, the cross of Christ, Um, To be fair, that's a possibility. But if you follow the flow of thought, it follows the election of the believer, the salvation of the believer in time by the work of the Spirit, which then leads to a changed life and obedience. So why then would he mention sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ? What does it mean? Well, the imagery of people being sprinkled with blood is there in the Old Testament. Sprinkling like this didn't happen on the Day of Atonement, and it didn't happen at any of the occasions when offerings were being made for sin. Blood was sprinkled on people in two instances under the Levitical law. One was the sprinkling of the blood of a bird sacrifice on a leper, in terms of that cleansing ceremony in Leviticus 14. The other was when the blood of a ram was sprinkled on Aaron and his sons in a symbolic cleansing and setting apart to the priesthood. And you can read about that in Leviticus 8 and Exodus 2. But these aren't what Peter has in mind. There is one other occasion which has sprinkling of blood on people in the Old Testament, but it wasn't part of the Levitical law. It was before that. But it's so significant that actually it's mentioned in both Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 12. So, what is it? Well, we read about it in Exodus 24. And if you want to turn back to that passage, you'll be able to see it there in front of you, verses 7 and 8 in particular. And it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said, we will do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. So what's happening? Well, Moses proclaimed God's word to the people and they promised to obey. And Moses then writes the words down. He builds an altar. The young men, they bring their burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord and were told that half of the blood of those sacrifices is sprinkled on the altar. And then the rest, the other half, is placed in bowls or basins. And then Moses reads the word again to the people and they, verse 7, promise to obey. They are entering into a covenant of obedience, a promise of obedience. And then Moses sprinkles the blood of the covenant from the sacrifice onto the people. This covenant of obedience sealed in blood. Now many of you will know that in ancient times blood sealed a covenant agreement. And here the bond was made between God and the people. And so you have this amazing picture. The people promise they will obey God's word. And blood is sprinkled on them. It shows their part in that agreement. Their commitment to obedience. And the blood on the altar shows God's part of the covenant. And his commitment to faithfulness to them. So when you take that back into our text, you can see that Peter is drawing in imagery from the only place in Scripture where you have the connection between obedience and sprinkling of blood. And he takes that and he applies it to the new covenant believer in this whole matter of election and salvation and obedience. And so the believer, having been chosen and saved and brought into that new covenant with God, sealed with the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant, when Jesus died upon the cross, he quoted Exodus 24, when he spoke of his sacrifice as the blood of the covenant. And so when grace draws us to trust Christ, we're not just accepting the benefit of his life and his death for us, but we are united with him, we are made partakers of the new covenant with that desire then to obey him, to keep his word and to follow him wherever he takes us. And so Peter is simply saying this, when you were saved, you were brought into this new covenant, and when we were set apart by the Holy Spirit, we were set apart to God for a life of obedience sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so obedience is inseparable from this sprinkling of blood. Romans six seventeen. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart. You see, salvation in Christ always leads to obedience. Symbolically, we have been sprinkled in the blood, demonstrating that need for and commitment to following the Lord. And friends, the other part is also true. We mustn't forget the sprinkling of the blood on the altar. We mustn't forget what God has done. And that sprinkling of blood on the altar is symbolic for God's commitment to his people. In terms of forgiveness and grace. And we are totally secure in Jesus Christ. We are totally secure because his honour is at stake. He has committed to us. And by grace, when we are brought to trust in Jesus, to know God, our hearts want to live for him. Hearts of stone are a place where hearts of flesh, those desires we want to obey him and love him and serve him, to give our all for him. And symbolically, we've been washed in the blood to deal with our sin and sprinkled by the blood in terms of that commitment to obey and so the blood shed and sprinkled on the altar is God's commitment to honour his covenant and to continue to forgive and to hold us even when we fail. We are secure in the God who keeps covenant. And that's what, that's what Peter is saying to these dear believers. He's saying, look, you're elect. This election has been made a reality in your lives that the Holy Spirit has worked. You have been brought to trust Christ. You are new creations and you're pilgrims in this world to serve the Lord. And it's all about obeying the Lord whilst you're here, even though things are hard. But it's amazing because God in this new covenant has committed to keep you and hold you through it all. And it all comes together as a great encouragement to these people. And that's why he says in verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. You know, we, we read those words and they often appear in various forms at the beginnings of letters. And we kind of just read over them and think, oh, that's a nice greeting. But What's he saying? Grace to you in your situation. Peace be multiplied to you in all your trials. His heart is that they would know the full blessings of the wonderful truths that he has been speaking of. This gift of salvation is grace and the result is peace and Peter wants these believers to know it in abundance in their lives. His heart is that they have this grace, that they have this peace which is theirs in Christ to the greatest measure, the blessings that God has for them. That those things will be multiplied to them. It's not just a a castaway or throwaway greeting. It is the earnest desire of his heart that these believers would know the richness of this grace and the blessings of this peace. And, friends, when you think of the blessings that are ours in Christ, the, the amazing truths that are true of us in Christ, we should absolutely embrace this truth of election in the scriptures. And it should thrill our hearts. It's not something that we should back away from. It should be a thrill to our hearts. Why? Because it humbles us. It kills all our pride. And that's a blessing because God gives grace to who? He gives grace to the humble. It gives all the glory to God. Repentance and faith are his gifts to us. The ability to respond to Jesus Christ. The power to obey him is all of him. Election is the most God-exalting truth and it highlights God's commitment to his people. It also produces joy in us. Our only hope is the grace and goodness of God taking hold of us and drawing us to himself. Friends, The truth of election should never make us what is sometimes called the frozen chosen. This should bring great joy and passion and zeal that God in his sovereign mercy has taken hold of us and set his love upon us before the foundation of the world. It's incredible. Psalm 65, blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your course. That's a wonderful verse. Believer, God has loved you since he ever was, and he always has been. You are loved with everlasting love. And it blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been made a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of that darkness into his most marvellous light. What privileges we have. And all because of sovereign grace. And it stirs up those desires for holiness. Is there a more compelling reason to live for the glory of God than to know that he has chosen me out of his own love? Surely our hearts should be full of love and gratitude. That should be the, the motivation to serve. Paul, Paul uses this in Colossians 3. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies and kindness and humility and meekness and longsuffering. One preacher says, Nothing under the gracious influence of the Holy Spirit can make a Christian more holy than the thought that he has chosen. Shall I sin, he says, after God has chosen me? Shall I transgress after such love upon me? Shall I go astray after so much loving kindness and tender mercy? Oh, no, my God. Since you have chosen me, I will love you and I will live for you and I will give myself to be yours forever, consecrating myself to your service. And in all of this, it gives us security. Because this salvation is God's work from beginning to end. I am secure in his hand. He that has begun a good work in us will bring it through to completion. In Christ, chosen of God, you are sealed for all eternity. Your name from the palms of his hands. Eternity will not erase. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Should that not give us such hope? Such confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Lord. And should that firm foundation not make us bold and courageous? Friends, this great truth is so rich. It is such a blessing. We need to understand that this blessed doctrine of election provides further means and privilege to respond to our God in praise and adoration. In fact, we will spend eternity praising his glorious name For such mercy, for such grace, for such pardon. This great truth, it devastates all pride, but it draws out praise. And the Lord is consistent, he is just, he is perfectly righteous, and he always does what is right. And Peter wanted his readers to see the electing love of God and the glorious comfort that it gives to those who believe. Those who are going through difficult times, the the certain hope of the glory to come, his sovereign purpose, his faithfulness, will keep his people. And so if God has chosen us for himself, if he has destined us for glory, then his faithfulness commits him to keep us in the faith. And if we have any faith, any signs of life, any repentance, any trust in Jesus, it is of him and we should praise him for it. And what God has done to save and call us to himself is not to tell us ahead of time if we are elect or not. As we said last time, God never reveals this except through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Christ is central to our election. Instead of telling us that we're elect, God sent his son and says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. And so I say again as we finish, If you're here tonight and you are not saved, then you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You turn from your sin and you look to the Saviour who died on the cross for sinners and who is able to save all who call on his name. He never casts out any who come to him in faith. And if you think, well, you've been speaking about this election, How, how can I know if I'm called? You trust the Lord Jesus. Maybe you think, oh, there's no hope for me. There's no hope. But you know, none is too bad. None is too hard. None is too far gone. God is free. God is rich unto all who call upon his name. He will save all who in every place call upon the name of Jesus. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's there for you this night. And as we said before, if you can call, then you are called, and so turn to Jesus, trust him. And for those of us who do know him, how we should rejoice that we are secured by sovereign grace, and one day, now and also in that great day, we will worship him, and how we will worship him forever. Amen.